Turn with me in your scripture to the book of Job. We'll be reading tonight from Job chapter 34. Job chapter 34. We have come a long way. We have uh, heard uh, Job and his three friends uh, working through uh, Job's suffering. Suffering we know at the beginning of uh, this book comes uh, in God's sovereignty uh, and comes upon Job. Uh, God loves Job. Job fears God. Uh, Satan hates God, hates Job, and wants uh, this suffering in Job's life uh, to get Job to curse God and die. And so we've seen three friends come along to, to counsel Job, and we've seen that they have been more hindrance uh, than help. Uh, They have not pointed him uh, to the Lord and to trust in the Lord, but they've accused him and they've they've slandered him. And then we've been recently introduced to Elihu, uh, who will speak four times speeches. We're going to read the second one tonight. Uh, Job nor the three friends ever reply uh, to him. And so perhaps uh, as we read through uh, Elihu's words to Job, Uh, Perhaps it may be uh, that what he is speaking is perhaps striking a chord uh, with the friends uh, and with Job. Perhaps that's why we don't hear from them again uh, as Elihu prepares the way for the Lord himself to come uh, and to speak to Job uh, in his suffering. So we pick up the reading uh, then at Job 34. This is uh, the word of the Lord. Then Elihu answered and said, Hear my words, you wise men, and give ear to me, you who know. For the ear tests words as the palate tastes food. Let us choose what is right. Let us know among ourselves what is good. For Job has said, I'm in the right, and God has taken away my right. In spite of my right, I'm counted a liar. My wound is incurable, though I'm without transgression. What man is like Job, who drinks up scoffing like water? who travels in company with evildoers and walks with wicked men. For he has said, it profits a man nothing that he should take delight in God. Therefore, hear me, you men of understanding, far be it from God that he should do wickedness and from the Almighty that he should do wrong. For according to the work of a man, he will repay him. And according to his ways, he will make it befall him. Of a truth, God will not do wickedly, And the Almighty will not pervert justice. Who gave him charge over the earth? And who laid on him the whole world? If he should set his heart to it and gather to himself his spirit and his breath, all flesh would perish together. Man would return to dust. If you have understanding, hear this. Listen to what I say. Shall one who hates justice govern? Will you condemn him who is righteous and mighty? Who says to a king, worthless one. And to nobles, wicked man, who shows no partiality to princes, nor regards the rich more than the poor, for they are all the work of his hands. In a moment they die. At midnight the people are shaken and pass away, and the mighty are taken away by no human hand. For his eyes are on the ways of a man, and he sees all his steps. There's no gloom or deep darkness where evildoers may hide themselves. For God has no need to consider a man further that he should go before God in judgment, 
He shatters the mighty without investigation and sets others in their place. Thus, knowing their works, he overturns them in the night, and they are crushed. He strikes them for their wickedness in a place for all to see, because they turned aside from following him and had no regard for any of his ways, so that they caused the cry of the poor to come to him, and he heard the cry of the afflicted. When he is quiet, who can condemn? When he hides his face, who can behold him, whether it be a nation or a man? That a godless man should not reign, that he should not ensnare the people. For has anyone said to God, I have borne punishment, I will not offend any more. Teach me what I do not see. If I've done iniquity, I will do it no more. Will he then make repayment to suit you because you reject it? For you must choose and not I. Therefore declare what you know. Men of understanding will say to me, and the wise man who hears me will say, Job speaks without knowledge. His words are without insight. Would that Job were tried to the end, because he answers like wicked men. For he adds rebellion to his sin. He claps his hands among us and multiplies his words against God. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray for his help tonight. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you again that uh, we can come to you and hear uh, ancient words uh, ever true. Lord, we know that uh, men and women and children, we come and we go. We are but for a time, uh, but your word uh, endures forever. It is secure uh, in the heavens, and that every word we read in the Scripture is breathed out by you. And so, Lord, we pray tonight that as we've already sung, indeed, Lord, that we would come with open hearts to this passage of Scripture, uh, anticipating uh, that you will speak to us by your Spirit, and we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, one of my uh, favorite hymns, and perhaps one of your favorite hymns too, is the hymn, More Love to Thee, O Christ, uh, written by Elizabeth Prentice. She was a 19th century uh, woman. Her husband, George, was a Presbyterian minister in a, in a church, actually, now that's an OPC church in, in Portland, Maine, uh, Second Parish in Portland, Maine. Uh, she wrote the book, Stepping Heavenward. And she also wrote that hymn. Her life was uh, full of difficulties, including uh, a body racked with pain that made her almost an invalid. Uh, that hymn, More Love to Thee, O Christ, apparently was written by her in one evening, although she didn't show it to anybody, apparently, for over a, a decade. But she also wrote it after uh, two of her children in uh, succession uh, had, had died. Now, if you know that hymn, first two stanzas um, make sense. They go like this. More love to thee, O Christ, more love to thee. Hear thou the prayer I make on bended knee. This is my earnest plea, more love, O Christ, to thee. Second verse, once earthly joy I crave, sought peace and rest. Now thee alone I seek, give what is best. This all my prayer shall be more love, O Christ, to thee. But then comes the third verse. And when you've sung it too, you maybe have stopped short. Because the third verse goes like this. Uh, Let sorrow do its work, send grief and pain. Sweet are thy messengers, sweet their refrain, when they can sing with me, more love, O Christ to thee, more love to thee. 
more love to thee. Remember singing that song? Let sorrow do its work. Send grief and pain. And we want to say, wait a minute. I don't know if I want to sing that verse. <laughs> well, Elizabeth Prentice believed that the suffering of the Christian uh, draws the Christian nearer to God. Now, we saw last time that's what Elihu believes. Elihu believes that there is purpose in suffering. He doesn't know exactly what it is. For Job, neither did his friends, but uh, the, Job's three friends, but Elihu knows that, that God uses suffering. And uh, certainly throughout the scripture, we find that that is true to draw us closer to himself. Elihu specifically said that suffering sometimes, though it doesn't come because Job has sinned, that's not the case in Job's life, but sometimes suffering does reveal the sin in our hearts when we are squeezed and when we are, we are pressed. And Elihu said to Job that, you know, if we're headed towards sin uh, and towards destruction, a mediator, he speaks of, a mediator steps in and we're renewed and restored and we'll sing with joy to God again. God is greater than we think. Uh, this is what Elihu wanted Job to know in his first speech. And then in this chapter, we find out that uh, Elihu has something else that he wants Job to know and that we need to know. Uh, that without question, uh, Elihu wants Job to know that not only is God greater than we think, speaking to us in our suffering uh, and delivering us from death, uh, but he is also absolutely just. And in him, there is no unrighteousness at all. Elihu wants Job to know that as he goes through the suffering, uh, that God is the just governor of all, all peoples, all things, at all times, in all places. And so we want to think together tonight about, uh, about God's government of the world. This is what Elihu speaks of. Now, Elihu is convinced that Job is not speaking right. Uh, we know that already from last time. There has been, Elihu believes, an undercurrent, uh, an undercurrent in Job's defense to his friends. Uh, scientists speak of what's called cosmic Microwave background radiation, or CMB for short. Uh, it's described as the faint glow of light that fills the universe. Well, Elihu believes that in Job's speaking, he can detect another CMB, a comprehensive mumbling background radiation. It's filling all Job's speeches, not with light, but with a tinge of unhappiness with the ways and justice of God. Now, we have that sometimes, don't we? Uh, we secretly believe at times in our Christian life that we're not getting a square deal from God. We're not getting a, a fair shake, as they say, although I don't know where that comes from. Though we have the Bible, though we have the promises, though we have the gospel, though we have Jesus in the flesh, the Holy Spirit present with us, we still have times, don't we, when we don't really believe that God is as good or that God is as just as we've been told. And so as a better counselor, Elihu wants to set the record straight for Job uh, and for us. First of all, uh, Job needs to understand that he, uh, like all men, uh, is a sinner. Now, regardless of why he is suffering, as we said, Elihu doesn't know why Job is suffering. Elihu does not say Job is suffering because of his sin. But Elihu believes that in his suffering, Job is sinning. So though, though it may be true that, and it is true, that this suffering has not come upon Job, we know that from the Lord himself, not because Job has sinned in some egregious way, 
But Elihu is saying that as this suffering has come, it's revealing sin in Job's heart. And he is responding to suffering in sin. Job has been speaking, Elihu says, of being in the right, having his right taken away, and despite being in the right, being counted a liar by his friends. So, okay, says Elihu, you are quite something. You're concerned uh, about, uh, about the right, but the way you're talking does not seem to be right at all. The way you're speaking, says uh, Elihu, is reminiscent of how evildoers and the wicked speak. How so? Well, verse 9. For, Elihu says of Job, he has said, it profits a man nothing that he should take delight in God. Now, the question is, did Job uh, really say that? I mean, that's quite something to say. Well, if you turn back in your Bible, hopefully you got your Bible open with me, you turn back to what Job has said. So, friends, and you turn back to Job chapter 9, verse 22. Remember this? Job speaking to Bildad. It is all one. It's all one. It's all the same thing. Therefore, I say, he destroys, that's God, destroys both the blameless and the wicked. When disaster brings sudden death, he mocks at the calamity of the innocent. Verse 30 of chapter 9. If I wash myself with snow and cleanse my hands with lye, yet you, that's the Lord, will plunge me into a pit and my own clothes uh, will abhor me. Turn to chapter 21. 21, verse 15, for some other words of Job. Job said this, Job 21, 15, What is the Almighty that we should serve him? And what profit do we get if we pray to him? In other words, Job implying none. And then Job 24, verse 1, Why are not times of judgment kept by the Almighty? And why do those who know him never see his days? So, well, yes, Elihu seems to have captured a bit of the gist of Job's response to suffering. Job has been saying, at times, if this is the lot of those who fear God, suffering and pain and agony, what use is it? If the wicked and righteous are treated alike, what's the point? Now, of course, we know that's not true. Uh, The righteous and the wicked are not treated alike. The wicked that suffer, that's true, and the righteous suffer too. But the great difference, of course, is that the wicked suffer in anticipation of eternal suffering. The righteous suffer uh, that they might grow in holiness in anticipation of future glory, right? So both the righteous and the wicked suffer, but they're not treated the same way because in the one, one, it is anticipation of a future suffering when when there's no repentance. In the other, in the Christian, uh, we know that it is God purifying and refining. Job himself has said uh, that in the end, he will come through this suffering like gold. So yes, a non-Christian and a Christian might go through the same external trial, fire and flood and hurricane or war or death, but that does not mean it is for nothing. God is at work. Now, this is what Job is, is questioning. And Elihu says, listen, you're all wet, but more than that, uh, you talk too much. Did you notice what Elihu said? End of the chapter, verse 35. Job speaks without knowledge. His words are without insight. Would that Job were tried to the end because he answers like wicked men, for he adds rebellion to his sin. He claps his hands among us and multiplies his words against God. Now, this is quite something for Elihu to say, of course. You remember Elihu was introduced as the, uh, in chapter 32 as the belly bursting, right, full of words, Elihu. So for Elihu to say that someone talks too much probably needs to be taken with a grain of salt. But it is true. 
that Job has been multiplying words, and specifically Elihu says words against God, speaking without knowledge, without insight. Proverbs 10.19 says, when words are many, transgression is not lacking, but whoever restrains his lips is prudent. Elihu is saying, Job, remember, uh, you are a sinner, and your many words have led you into rebellion, namely questioning the, uh, the justice, the goodness of God. Um, remember James, there's a lot of connections between Job and James, but remember James and James chapter 3 when he's talking about the tongue, he says something like, uh, uh, if no one stumbles in their speech, he's a perfect man. <laughs> you know? I mean, if there's anybody who doesn't have trouble with the tongue, perfect man. Well, there are none, except for Christ, of course, is what James is saying. In other words, we all stumble. And that's it. We all stumble. And Elihu says to Job, remember who you are, and remember suffering is an occasion when we are tempted to sin. Remember, you are a sinner prone to wander. Yes, you fear God, but that doesn't make you sinless. You may not have sinned in such a way to bring on this suffering, but look at what this suffering has revealed about your own heart. You see, though Job wasn't claiming to be sinless, he does seem to be losing sight of the fact that whereas sin may have not been the cause of his suffering, he must not forget that sin is always lurking nearby, right, in our response to suffering. That's what Elihu is saying. In your response to suffering and your, your many words, it, it's, it's leading you to, to, to accuse God somehow of being unjust. And so though you've not sinned in an egregious way to bring on this suffering, you fear God, but remember that as you respond to suffering, sin is always lurking nearby. Now, can you understand this? Understand what Elihu's getting at here? Do you relate to this? Sometimes when we're hurting or suffering or experiencing a great trial, the thought may sleep, slip in. Why is God allowing this to happen? Why would, a, why would a good God allow this to happen? Why would a just God allow this to happen? And we might say, here I am, you know, trying to serve the Lord faithfully in this country, in this state, in this workplace, in this church, in this family, in this marriage, uh, in this relationship with all the challenges. Surely I don't deserve this, God. Surely I deserve something better. And we grow impatient and dissatisfied and we become bitter or we hold a grudge or our love grows cold towards God. We drift from the Lord, we drift from his people, we drift from his service, we drift from his worship, and we grumble, and that comprehensive mumbling background radiation starts radiating, you see. And so Elihu says to Job, remember this, there's a difference between a righteous self-defense and a defensive self-righteousness. There is a difference between maintaining that you do love and fear and know and serve God and denying that you ever fail to do so. There's a difference between denying that you're suffering for a sin that you committed and denying that your suffering might have led you to commit any sin. Job, you are yet a sinner. And uh, God himself, says Elihu, is just. Is just. Did you notice verse 10? 
Therefore, hear me, you men of understanding. He's maybe speaking to, to Job and the three friends, but perhaps it seems more broadly here, men of understanding, just, just anyone who understands. Far be it from God that he should do wickedness, and from the Almighty that he should do wrong. Now, we often get this wrong. Um, God never does. We get things wrong. God never does. Elihu will repeat a similar statement later on in this, uh, in this book, chapter 36, verse 23. He will say this, Who has prescribed for God his way? Or who can say to God, you have done wrong? You're wrong. There's something wrong here. No one can say that, says Elihu to God. Should remind us of Abraham, for instance, pleading for the righteous in Sodom. Genesis 18, remember this, far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? Yes, he will. Should remind us of the Song of Moses in Deuteronomy 32.4. The rock, his work is perfect, for all his ways are justice. A God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he should remind us of the words of King Jehoshaphat in 2 Chronicles 19. Now then, let the fear of the Lord be upon you. Be careful what you do, for there is no injustice with the Lord our God or partiality or taking bribes. Or the psalmist in Psalm 92, he's speaking about Christians in old age. He says, Christians in old age will declare that the Lord is upright. He is my rock and there is no unrighteousness in him. That's what happens as you grow older with the Lord. These are old saints. So what do they say? Oh, there's no unrighteousness in him. Or when the Apostle Paul is speaking about the great mystery of God's sovereign, electing, discriminating love, he says this, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. Now, we can say Elihu agrees with them all. Here's the thing. The thought for Elihu of God acting wickedly or the thought of God somehow doing wrong or an injustice in anything is absolutely uh, reprehensible to the believer. And it should be reprehensible to Job and reprehensible to you and I. The thought should never enter our minds, and if it is planted in our minds, we should never entertain it, says Elihu, verse 12. Of a truth, God will not do wickedly, and the Almighty will not pervert justice. Down to verse 16. If you have understanding, hear this. Listen to what I say. Shall one who hates justice govern? Is that what's going on here? Will you condemn him who is righteous and mighty? For example, who says to a king, worthless one, to nobles, wicked man who shows no partiality to princes, nor regards the rich more than the poor, for they are all the work of his hands. Elihu's point here is this, friends. God is an impartial judge. He's righteous and true and just and impartial. He takes no bribes. So whether you're rich or poor, if you're a king or prince, a peasant or pauper, doesn't matter. They are all, says Elihu, the work of his hands. Now, isn't that interesting? Elihu says, listen, Job, God is just and doesn't play favorites. Why not? Well, because we are all his. He made us all. He is the creator. 
and we are all his creatures, right? We are all in the same situation, says the Lord. We are all, uh, as it were, naked before the one with whom we have to do. doesn't matter how much money we have. He is the just God. We are the work of his hands. Listen to William Henry Green, 19th century Princeton Seminary professor. I've mentioned him before. Notice what he, listen to what he says. If a conflict arise between God and his creatures, whom he can be under no possible temptation to injure, I mean, he, we're his creatures, we belong to him, the overwhelming presumption, says Green, nay, the absolute certainty is that he is right and they are wrong. <laughs> whether they can see it to be so or not, right? If a conflict arises between God and his creatures, you know who's right? God, whether we can see it or not. In other words, if you ever get into an argument with God about who is right and who is wrong, you should be able to guess who will come out the loser of the argument. Likewise, if there's something in the Scripture that I don't understand or that doesn't seem to make sense to me or that seems to be impossible or that I can't figure out how it all works together, my first and only impulse must be either God or I got it wrong. And it will never be the former. This is the, this is the believer's heart. So Job is a sinner. God is just, and all the world, says Elihu, all the world is accountable to him. He is the just governor over all. Have you ever uh, you know, gotten the impression from some people in authority that they do not really believe that they are accountable to anybody? Have you ever met somebody like that? Somebody in a position of a authority or not, I guess, really, but... You get the impression from them that uh, they have absolutely no sense that they themselves need to give an account. Well, it can happen. It can happen in the home. A father or mother treats their children so poorly and terribly, never once thinking that they are answerable and will be answerable to someone else. It can happen in the church. Elders and pastors abusing their authority lording it over others, adding or subtracting from the commands of Scripture, never imagining that they will be held accountable themselves. It can happen in the government. We read about that tonight in the Belgian Confession of Faith. Our Reformed Fathers in the Faith knew very well that no government should claim absolute authority. They are under God, kings and queens and presidents and prime ministers, governors and mayors, making laws, enforcing laws, punishing the infringement of laws, never stopping to consider that they too are under authority, under law, God's law, and will one day have to give an account. But it can happen to any one of us, living our life as if we will never be called to give an account to God. Now, Elihu knew this was foolish, verse 11, for according to the work of a man, he will repay him. And according to his ways, he will make it befall him. Verse 13, who gave him, that is God, who gave him charge over the earth and who laid on him the whole world? If he should set his heart to it and gather to himself his spirit and his breath, all flesh would perish together and man would return to dust. 
God is just in all his ways, says Elihu. He has charge over the earth, uh, the whole world. And here's the thing. Uh, no one ever gave God this position. God is not dependent on man for his authority. God does not govern by the consent of the governed. You may have heard that language before. Not so with God. God does not give election speeches. Uh, God does not uh, ask you to please vote for him. He does not um, thank you for your votes afterwards. Man does not put God into power. And Elihu says, if it were the desire of God's heart as the creator, he would simply wish it, speak it. His spirit and breath would all return to him and all flesh perish because he is because he is god paul said in him we live and move and have our being <laughs> paul said in colossians of christ all things were made through him and for him he sustains all things in him all things hold together without him everything falls apart All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him. You remember the Apostle Paul when he is on uh, Mars Hill and he uh, has this sermon to the people who come, right? They love to hear all the news. And and he says, God is the, he's the creator and he's also the judge. One day he's going to return to judge the living and the dead through the man whom he has appointed. And he has given proof of this through raising him from the dead. And of course, their response of many is to, to sneer when they heard of the resurrection of the dead. But he is, he is, he will, he is the judge of all. He has all authority, all power. He will judge all men, all women, all peoples of all times and all places. And so Romans 3.19 says, the whole world then is accountable to God. This is what Elihu says, verse 20, in a moment they die at midnight, the people are shaken and pass away and the mighty are taken away by no human hand. For his eyes are on the ways of a man. He sees all his steps. There's no gloom or deep darkness where evildoers may hide themselves. For God has no need to consider a man further that he should go before God in judgment. He knows all things. Verse 26, he strikes them for their wickedness in a place for all to see because they turned aside from following him and had no regard for any of his ways. Verse 29, when he is quiet, who can condemn? When he hides his face, who can behold him? Whether it be a nation or a man that a godless man should not reign, that he should not ensnare the people, whether it be a nation, you see, or a man. The point there is this, says Elihu, the whole world is accountable to God. How dare we then think, Job, that God is somehow accountable to us? Verse 33, will he then, speaking of the Lord, make repayment to suit you, because you reject it, for you must choose and not I. Therefore, declare what you know. This is the point, Elihu says. Job, you have been, you have been demanding a, a session with God. You've been demanding God to, to answer you this whole time. You have been in your suffering now, uh, responding to God in such a way as if God somehow is accountable to you rather than you being accountable to God, you see. Job has been presuming that God 
owes him an answer. He's been demanding an answer. He's been demanding an opportunity. We've heard him to speak with God face to face, assuming that God must respond to Job on Job's terms, thinking that Job is the one who will ask the questions and God is the one who will supply the answers. Do you see yourself as accountable to God? Or do you think that somehow God is accountable to you? Hmm, That's a good question. Wouldn't it be great if uh, President Putin knew that he was accountable to God? Wouldn't it be good for all of us to know that rather than get it backwards? Isaiah hit the nail on the head in Isaiah 19. He said this, Ah, you who hide deep from the Lord your counsel, whose deeds are in the dark, and who say, who sees us, who knows us? You, says Isaiah, you turn things upside down. Shall the potter be regarded as the clay? That the thing made should say of its maker, he did not make me. Or the thing formed, say of him who formed it, he has no understanding. Oh, Elihu to Job, we turn things upside down when we make ourselves more righteous than God. We turn things upside down when we believe that God needs to prove himself worthy of our time, worthy of our love, and worthy of our efforts. Like the atheist who quipped in answer to the question, what will you do, Mr. Atheist? What will you say to God when you die and meet him at the judgment? And the atheist said, Uh, Not enough evidence. Have you heard that? Oh, they won't be saying that. (laughs) They will be bowing before his, his glory. But that's what we think. We think that somehow God needs to prove himself to us, that somehow he is accountable to us. Isaiah says that's turning things upside down. Instead of serving the creator, we demand the creature, or we demand the creator serve the creature. We turn things upside down, down when we, who are born sinful and wicked and rebellious and unrighteous, accuse God of doing wrong, wrong to allow this into my life, wrong to send this trial, wrong to give and then to take, wrong to bring good and then to allow evil, wrong to save some but not to save others, wrong to proclaim a heaven and to proclaim a hell. We accuse him of wrong. Listen to Isaiah again, Isaiah 49, where God says, I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. Woe to him who strives with him, who formed him, a pot among earthen pots. Does the clay say to him who forms it, what are you making? Or your work has no handles. Woe to him who says to a father, uh, what are you begetting? Or to a woman, with what are you in labor? I made the earth, says the Lord, and created man on it. It was my hands that stretched out the heavens, and I commanded all their host. You see the picture there in the Bible as the sperm and egg unite. Uh, I don't know how that happens exactly, but as the sperm and egg unite, does the newly conceived child shout out, Dad, what's going on? I don't like this arrangement. In the labor room, as the doctor's helping deliver the baby, does the baby cry out, Hey, what's going on here? What is this? You know, don't I have a say in this? Have you ever had your juice cup look up at you and say, Hey, I've got no handles. I'd rather be a coffee mug. 
No. No. Not happen, no. And we laugh. And we should. The Lord says, then why does one strive or accuse of injustice? Him who formed him and gave him life. Psalm 100 tells us, uh, all men owe the creator their service, their thanks, their songs, their thanksgiving. Uh, We are sheep in his pasture. He is the Lord. We are all accountable to him. We are sinners. God is just, and all the world is accountable to him. You are accountable to him. I am accountable to him. Job, uh, you need to know this. Uh, Ours is not to charge God with injustice, but to bow before him in worship. And here's the thing, friends. The Bible says, unlike what Job had, We all have had uh, much more revelation. Job knew a lot about God. He feared God. He loved God. He spoke of, uh, we hear him speak of a mediator. We hear him speak of a redeemer. But he did not have and was not accountable for what you and I have and will be accountable for. And we are all accountable for what we have seen And what we have heard of Jesus, remember Matthew 11, and uh, Jesus going through the towns, and he says, woe to you, woe to you Chorazin and Bethsaida. You know, it will be, said Jesus, from the lips of the Savior, it will be more bearable, he said, on the day of judgment uh, for, you know, Tyre and Sidon. Actually, he says, it will be more bearable for the, the people of Sodom then it will be for you who have had in these towns, you've seen me, you've seen my miracles, you've heard the gospel again and again and again. And Jesus says, you will be held accountable for all that revelation, all that grace, all that that message of salvation through a Savior. So much blessing, so much privilege, and one day, one day, you and I will stand before him, and I will be accountable. And the Lord will say, Peter, you're, you're a pastor. All those sermons, all those sermons, all those people whom you had opportunity to speak the truth to, and he'll say to you, uh, all those sermons... All those sermons, not the sermons you preached, but all those sermons you heard, you heard again and again. And what have you, what have you done with those? Well, friends, the only way for any of us to be able to anticipate joyfully that day <laughs> is to know that we will stand before him in Christ. Because it's only in Christ that all our failings and all our sins and uh, all... The whole world held accountable to him will be held accountable to our sin. The only way we can anticipate that day is to know that all our sin has been forgiven and covered uh, with the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we stand before him justified and adopted and sanctified and glorified all in Christ through faith. Elihu 
says to his suffering friend, ah, remember you are a sinner. You may not have, sin has not led to your suffering, but in your suffering, do not sin. The, the devil is always wanting us to sin in response to our suffering, to have hard thoughts of God. And what you've said, Job, is not right. God is just. There is no unrighteousness in him. He can never do wrong. So never in your Christian life, never allow the evil one to plant that thought in your heart. And remember that, that we will all... All stand before him. It is not God who is accountable to us, you say. It is we, his creatures, who are accountable to him. And we, unlike Job, we have the fullness of what it means, of course, to have a Redeemer who is Christ the Lord, in whom we might stand on that day before a holy God. And he will say, forgiven, well done, good and faithful servant, all because of Christ. Job, you need to know this. And so do we. Let's uh, pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for uh, these words in the scripture. Uh, Lord, we, uh, so many things we don't know uh, about this book, so many things we don't know about even this man, Elihu, as he appears here to speak. But Lord, we see him uh, coming as a friend to Job who is for him and who is with him and who wants him to have a, a bigger understanding of who you are. And so, Lord, that's our prayer too. We want to know you better in all your fullness, in your love and in your faithfulness and your mercy and also in your justice and your righteousness and, and holiness. And so, Lord, we pray that uh, what was in the heart of Elihu in this and this uh, uh, word to Job would be in our heart as well. Far be it from the Almighty to do wrong. And so, Lord, whatever we face, whatever challenges, even now, in this week, in our own lives, in our families, that we would have uh, trust in you, that you are good and you are holy. And when we don't understand and when we struggle, we can trust in you and we can rest in you, our good and gracious God, and we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.